Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you before we start to wherever you are listening to this. Just a word of warning, we do this podcast three times a week, but we're not always sure which day it's going to be on. So the only way to keep your finger on the pulse and listen to the latest episode is to subscribe, get notifications, why not drop us a review while you're there. Right, enough of that. Let's talk some rugby. I'm Ben James. I'm joined by Matthew Southcombe. How you doing, Matt? Good afternoon. Back on after a, a little break. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, another little break for you. Yeah, God. I've got a couple. I've got a couple. We'll get we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. Actually, your 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 slightly longer break. Uh, but it's been a busy afternoon or busy day in you the uh, that, yeah. in the Wales Online offices, hasn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Obviously, the uh, the Rob Howley uh, decision has arrived. He's um, been suspended from rugby for eighteen months. Suspended by nine. Uh, which means, you know, providing uh, they, there's no more, nothing more untoward, then yep. he can be back in action. I think it's June next year. Um, so it's good to have it all sort of done and dusted with, I guess, for now. Um, but the the judicial report made some for some interest in reading. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. Um, I guess the thing that jumps out, first of all, is the amount of bets over that four year period. Three hundred and sixty three bets placed. Mm. On over what was it eleven hundred matches? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Twenty-four, of which are connected matches. So that means anything pertaining to a match that Rob Howley would have been involved in Wales or a team directly competed against Wales. So, yeah. for example, a Six Nations match. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's pretty um, it's pretty eye-opening, isn't it? You know, we all there was a lot of speculation around the time uh, when it all broke. Uh, we'll come on to that in a bit, I'm sure, but. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the the overwhelming reaction really is a mixture of of shock, um, a bit like it was uh, back in September, mixed in with a, a bit of sadness. Really, um, you know, you look at what has happened. Um, these are clearly the actions of of a man who has something that he has to deal with. Um, he needs. Uh, they were clearly the actions of somebody who needed help. Um, he seems to be getting that help now. Um, and hopefully that continues, but it, it's sort of a fine line, isn't it? Between, you know, we have to acknowledge that that wrongdoing took place. Um, you know, whether it was small or large amounts of money, and you know that's a substantial amount of bets over a four or five year period. Um, you know, that that is something that has to be frowned upon. Um, it, it can't happen. But at the same time, as I said, it, the way that it's all transpired, this is clearly somebody. Um, who who had problems that he had to deal with, and and hopefully um, it, this sets him uh, on a path to to dealing with that. Yeah, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive things, are they? You know, I think we can admit that Rob Howley did wrong. He admits he did wrong. He will face punishment, but also as a sport, we need to give him help because that's something that he clearly needs. Hmm. Um, some more interesting details that sort of came out was the fact that he um well he. He set up the uh, the account in his own name. Yeah. He used Welsh Rugby Union uh, email address and he used the Welsh Rugby Union's work phone. Yeah. Which... Well, this this is why I'm saying that these were clearly the actions exactly. of somebody who, who was, you know, in a certain frame of mind um, that, you know, that you know. would push you to do that. You know, if... You know, it's not. You don't want you don't want to read too much into things, but it, it is almost like a cry for help, isn't it? Yeah, in many ways, I guess it is. Um, and there's there's an air of um, perhaps desperation about it all. Um, 
but you know it, it's all out there now this um is hopefully quite a cathartic process for him in, in due time you know right now it's going to be yeah. pretty ugly um as the story plays out in the public uh, which can happen to to people who are in the public eye um, but hopefully over time this whole process is quite cathartic for him and he gets himself right back on the right track and um but it's important to acknowledge that he he is rightfully punished for yeah. for what he did. I think what what deserves credit is the way the union have handled it. I think you know it's probably three months to the day that, that the the investigation started, and here we are. Yeah. So it's three months to the day the investigation started. Here we are. Not even you know the new year. It's not even the you know same year yeah. as the World Cup, uh, and we know where we stand. Yeah, I think the union have done well all the way through it. Um, and we'll probably go on to touch on things that happened right at the start and, and all the way through, really. Um, you know, things going well at the World Cup meant that the the story disappeared, um, by you know, by and large. Um, and since the conclusion of the World Cup, things have been dealt with fairly swiftly. You know, they've clearly done a thorough investigation, as we were promised. Um, they, they seem to have looked after Howley's well-being throughout all this because he has obviously remained a WIU employee up until the end of his contract, uh, which came at the end of the World Cup. Um, and they've clearly got a decision that they're happy with and they seem to have dug out the facts. Um, and, you know, World Rugby are clearly happy with how this has been handled because they haven't really stepped in at yeah. all. So, you know, you've got to give credit where it's due to the Welsh Rugby Union for the way they've conducted their business uh, on this occasion. I suppose the next question that arises is the ban finishes 16th of June 2020. Mm. He will be eligible then to return to rugby-related activities. Um, the question is, can he come back from this? Yeah, well, you just hope that he's given he's given the benefit of being judged on his CV rather, rather than the mistakes that he's made up until this point. Um, you know, because purely on a coaching basis, he's obviously achieved a hell of a lot in the game, um, and obviously as a player as well. You yeah. know, it's, it's easy to forget that, uh, given his coaching career has been going on for so long now as well. Um, you know, he's obviously you know the, the reports are that he, he missed out on the Italian job um, as a result of all this. Um, now, obviously, the Lions are in twenty twenty one. I mean, you know, it, that would be a big call for Warren Gatland. Um, you know, they're clearly, you know, I, I don't know what sort of damage this whole episode has done to their relationship. It may have it may have had some, it may have had none, you know. Gatlin may be sticking by Howley and, and may hope to get him involved in that Lions tour in some capacity to try and get him, you know, maybe on the road to employment elsewhere. Um, you know, if he's struggling to get a job at the end of all this, perhaps, you know, some sort of role with the Lions may help that along. Um but yeah, I just hope that he's he's afforded um, you know, the same opportunities as other people, um, based on his coaching credentials. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned the Lions, because it's it's something that I sort of for some reason at the back of my head I just ruled him out of it. Mm, well I think it would be I think it would be a big call it would. for Gatlin to name him as, as an attack coach, but you know, some sort of skills assistant slash, you know, number two body around somewhere, you know. That that I, it would be a big decision for Gatlin yeah. to take him on the Lions tour. The Gat- Gatlin's been very loyal to Holy. He has, since, right? And he? technically, by that point, he's done his time, so to speak. You know, he shouldn't. Yeah. This shouldn't be held against him so much after this. You know, they will. Ob- this will follow him around forever, but it shouldn't impact his chances of getting a job. So, 
you know, we'll wait and see on that. I'm not saying that Gatland will pick him as a backs coach, um, but it wouldn't entirely surprise me no. based on the on whatever situation is playing out at the time, whether he goes as some member of the backroom staff. Do you think this is the end of the saga then? I do hope so. Um, I mean, there's no reason for it not to be unless unless there's something they missed or something else comes to light, but I don't really get that impression. You know, we've, we've both read the report and it seems pretty thorough. Um, it's all in there. As far as I can see, a lot of it we, we sort of knew already. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was new. There were a few things in there that that, that, that were just absolute rumours that were flying around before this came out. So, you know, hopefully this is the line in the sand moment. Um, you know, if, if Rob Howley had, you know, uh, any sense, he'd keep his head down now. Um, I, you know... It's not for me to tell say this, but you know you, you wouldn't encourage him to be doing any interviews in three or four months' time. You know I think I'd keep myself to myself now and let this let this uh, suspension play out um, and lead a bit of a quiet life for the next few months. I'd be inclined to do an interview. Really? Yeah, I think just one, something just to sort of just one one to sort of clear the air. Well, like I said, you know. I would never, as a journalist, discourage yeah. anyone from wanting to air their views. But if I was on the other side of the fence, yeah. I think I would be advising him to keep counsel. Um, but that's know. more likely to come in June, isn't it? When I think when the suspension's up, then maybe he'll sort of yeah, possibly decide to sort of tell his side of. Well, look, you know, he's got to give an interview at some point if he ever wants to to be back involved in rugby. So the first yeah. time he does that, he's going to have to deal with it. Um, you know, it's just a case of. course all, all the Rob Howley stuff all this kicked off at the World Cup didn't it which you were out covering <laughs> yeah. yes I was indeed um, while you were on your little holiday in Japan <laughs> you managed to write a book I did I did write a book um, yeah it was uh, it was a lot a lot more work than I was anticipating um, you know obviously well that first week was supposed to be quiet and it turned out to be one of the biggest weeks of the tour so yeah I managed to write a book um, which was a nice little process and Nice little something to keep in the in the back pocket, and yeah, it was a good experience. It was a small book then, it fits in the back pocket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because you know we're trained to, you know, conditioned to write into certain lengths, and um, you know, and you get a publisher asking you for a couple more thousand words per chapter. You know, it's uh, it's an eye opening process, and yeah, like you said, I was there when all this kicked off with Howley and uh, and for the rest of the tour. Obviously, it's called No Regrets. Yes. Um, it's out for Christmas, isn't it? It is out. It's out now. Um, it's out now on Amazon and all good bookshops, Benjamin. Um, WH Smith. Mainly throughout Wales. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's called No Regrets. It The the title of the book comes from uh, a plan that the WRU hierarchy put into action in 2016. You may remember that famous defeat to the Chiefs um, in Waikato on that New Zealand tour day after that trip Martin Phillips uh, the CEO uh, Garrett John uh, Mr Howley and Mr Gatland all met in their hotel room the next day um, just to basically come together and say look we can't carry on like this um, or we're going nowhere so they came up with a plan um, they put it into action in the three years that followed and it all led up to uh, Japan in 2019 and this book the first few chapters cover 
how they came upon this plan, you know, some detail of the meeting in there, um, and how they put it into action, leading all the way up to uh, Japan. So what was the what was the process like of writing a book? Because obviously you picked the busiest time to do it. Um, yes. I can't remember the exact tweet you put out, but it was something like how many articles, how many videos? Yeah, I think many? it was something like a hundred. Throughout the World Cup, I've written about one hundred and fifty uh, articles, which I think we worked out was about three a day. Um, sometimes more, sometimes less. How many did how many do we use? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably most of them ended up in the bin, I'd imagine. Yeah, and a lot of video clips shot as well. Um, and then, you know, tens of thousands of words for, for the book as well. But, um, yeah, basically I wanted to um, take advantage of the opportunity that I had. You know, obviously very fortunate to be going out there to the World Cup um, to cover Wales, you know, for the Western Mail and Wales Online. Um, you know, there's not many reporters follow Wales the entire way around Japan. So, you know, it's quite a small group of us who are there every step of the way. Um, and as I said before that as well. Um, so it just felt like an opportunity I couldn't really pass up and uh, something I wanted to get my teeth into for some time um, and, and was grateful to our editor here, Paul Rowland, for affording me the um, the opportunity of doing it uh, in my spare time while I was out there. Yeah, I noticed Paul Rowland there. They uh, had a mention in the acknowledgements. Yes, yes, yep. yes. Important to thank the people who give you these opportunities, Ben. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, it was you know essentially the company you're paying for you to be out there. Um, so my duties first and foremost were to this group. Um but, you know, in the downtime that I did get, I managed to get some chapters uh, boxed off, but a lot of work had to be done afterwards because it was, um, there wasn't a lot of downtime out there. So it was uh, it was a good process, a uh, massive learning curve and a bit of a stressful one at times as well. I noticed certain names were missing from the acknowledgements. I won't, I, won't, <laughs> I, won't, I won't go any further than that. Um, obviously, we, we started the podcast talking about Rob Howley, yes. and I suppose that forms quite an important part of the book it's probably a chapter you wouldn't have expected to write but then how, how did sort of that come about in terms of the story breaking in japan and, and, and yeah. you being onto it yeah so i covered this um quite extensively in the book and it, i wanted to write it in a way that sort of gave people an idea of what it's like for a journalist when this stuff happens um you know we we had a tip off um you know there was only at the time uh probably three three or four news so it was myself Alex Bywater of Westgate Sports Agency um, the ITV crew were there and the BBC Wales crew were there uh, so there were only four organisations there at the time on uh, Will Kelly yeah. Daily Mail as well sorry uh, don't forget Will um, so it was a, a small group there at the time we had a text saying that there was an announcement coming at 1am Japan time so 1am Japan time is a bit of a strange one even though there's obviously the time difference to account for, you wouldn't expect an announcement to come at that time on the ground where the team are. Yeah, um, That's all we knew. So, um, obviously, panic starts to creep in. You know, what, what could this be? Uh, obviously, by this point, we all know we're going to have a late night. Um, and um, so, yeah, you start texting a few contacts, get a message back saying that Howley had been sent home. Um, uh, and basically, there were a few allegations in the message as well. Um, but it, it all came back to a betting um, breach. And obviously the first thing I thought was, there's no way that could be true. You know, that's the sort of stuff that that just doesn't happen anymore, you know? Um, especially to the team that you're covering and have covered in depth for the last two years. You know, you get to know everyone inside and outside the camp. And it was just like... So then, obviously, with a story that big, there are legal ramifications and you can't just, can't just write it and send yeah. it back. 
So you're trying furiously to get it stood up by as you know a few other places. You know, the more sources you get, the safer you feel about running a story. But I guess the crux of it was at that time. So that was about two or three hours before the announcement was coming. Um, but so few people knew what had happened at that point um, that it was really difficult to stand up. And then obviously, eventually, um, credit to Will at the Daily Mail, the story broke on their website, um, by which point it already had a, a sort of a story ready to go kind of on my laptop because you start piecing together the information so that it's ready if something happens. Um, then we had the statement through from the WRU confirming it, and it was, yeah, it was absolute chaos, really. You couldn't quite believe what had happened, and the story goes up, and... Um, yeah, we were awake until about three, four o'clock then that night, and uh, and then it was it was the day after that was the press conference, and and away we go basically. I remember it um, probably more fondly than others in this office because I was on a six a.m. shift, so I think I left at three o'clock and about five past three o'clock the news broke. So um, yeah, I escaped. Well, yeah, I mean. It, it, <laughs> We had to try and go to bed that night, and it was you just sat there then, just thinking, you know, like I said, I'd been to all the way going back to like Argentina, all the training camps, uh, pretty much every match in the last two years, and it was like everything had been so focused on this World Cup, and you just think, wow, could this totally undermine everything that they've been planning for for the last three years? Um, so that was, you know, just trying to think about crikey, what what ramifications has this actually got for this squad you know is it all going to fall apart you know less than a week before the tournament I suppose then what spoke volumes is how Wales dealt with it Um, first of all in terms of the unions you know how they dealt with it obviously Martin Phillips came out and faced the press and then over the next few days in the build to the World Cup several players as they had to did press conferences daily Mm. and it, it all just sort of you knew there was a crisis, but you thought, wow, Wales, Wales are dealing with this well. Yeah, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, if the media requirements weren't imposed on the squad, I, I think things might have played out a little bit differently. But, you know, the day um, the day before that night, the, the story broke. We'd spoken to Warren Gatland. It was his first press conference in Japan. Um, so obviously the day after, uh, they put Warren Gatland up again with Martin Phillips this time, uh, the CEO. Um, because they were the guys who should have been facing the questions, you know. Martin Phillips was obviously going to be integral to the process, and Warren Gatland had worked with Howley for twelve years in Wales. So, and obviously their relationship extended back way beyond that to the time at Wasps. So, you know, they put them up. They put up uh, two experienced players in Dan Bigger and Jonathan Davis. You know, it, that was those press conferences were uh, some of the most awkward ones I've been in. You know. They didn't want to be there. It was it was really difficult to ask questions, you know, because they were going to have to be penetrating. There were a lot of questions and a lot of answers to be got. Um, but I thought, you know, Martin Phillips did did a great job in that. Um, he was more probed on the the technical side of things, and then Warren Gatlin more so on the the emotion of it all. And you know, it was difficult. Neither of them, with all due respect, looked like they'd slept much. Um, they probably hadn't. Martin Phillips had just flown halfway around the world. And um, yeah, it was uh, it wasn't an easy time. Absolutely not. Um, but then I guess things went rather swimmingly in the pool stages, didn't they? Um, yeah. Obviously, beat Georgia first game out. Uh, then we got onto Australia, which 
I think the general consensus was that was the big one. Mm. You don't think that? Yeah, no, I, I, I often... Obviously, they've beaten Georgia, which we'd expect. They probably did it a little bit com- more comfortable than we've come to expect as well um, from Wales at World Cups, etc. Um, but Australia, I didn't think it had a particularly high degree of jeopardy to the game. I still felt like the loser of that Wales-Australia game was going to qualify albeit probably on the more difficult side of the draw then, but they were still going to make the quarterfinals. Um, so for that reason, I didn't think it was quite as sort of do or, you know, do or die as, as a lot of people might have been making out. But after that win, it was, it was palpable the impact that it had on the squad and the confidence that it gave them. You know, it was, you know, they'd beaten a, a, a real Southern Hemisphere top tier nation at a World Cup, which is yeah. which doesn't happen very often for Wales, you know. So it, it genuinely provided the side with a lift, and there was a real sense leaving the stadium that night that that was going to be a launch pad to something special. Um, and it had been coming all week because Australia were in total disarray uh, with the whole Reese Hodge thing. They they were they couldn't. Michael Checker couldn't stop himself just going after world rugby every chance he got and it dragged on and on all week and you know I talk about it in the book and how this transpires but meanwhile back in Wales it was like it was serene it was quiet it was confident it was and if you look at the two camps you know it wouldn't have been difficult to choose which one you'd have rather been in that week Um, and and, you know so it came to pass Indeed Um, and then on from Australia having beaten them we knew that Fiji was another massive game and it was probably one that we maybe not took for granted but we, we were probably a little bit too complacent with it, yeah we? well it was an easy cliche right I tried to avoid making it but 2007 just you couldn't stop yourself thinking about it after that yeah. first 10 minutes you know we had Ken Owens in the bin Fiji was scoring tries and I, it was almost shell shock it was like what what is happening? Like they'd been to um, the squad had been to Otsu for like a nine ten day break after the Australia game, which seemed perfect. Um, but then after about fifteen minutes, you were sat there thinking, "God, maybe we've got this wrong," you know, because we were, you know, I was writing things in the press saying, you know, Wales are do, you know, there's a there's a relaxed atmosphere around the camp, you know, it's nice and calm. They're recharging their batteries. And I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, maybe I've got this wrong," you know, maybe they they've taken their foot off the gas too much and they can't rediscover that that sort of you know physical and mental and emotional peak that they found to beat Australia and they looked like rabbits in headlights for the yeah. first sort of quarter of that match you was so, always safe in the knowledge that I watched them in Paris you know come back from like 16-0 down in the Six Nations earlier in the year so you knew they could come back from it but it, it just felt like anything that could go wrong was going wrong and Fiji were having the time of their lives and causing absolute chaos and yeah it was uh, it was definitely nervy moments that's the thing was it? I remember you know I think you look at the first two games I thought Wales played some you know good attack in rugby they look coherent they look fluent and then from that eight you know that eight day break in so we never really saw that again throughout the rest of the World Cup I remember one journalist described it though I, weirdly enough as the best Wales performance he'd seen all year that Fiji game which mm. I was incredulous at and, <laughs> and I had a few more journalists popping into my DMs on Twitter to describe their in- incredulity as well yeah you know, no, it was, it was a strange one it was and you know I, I I've, not seen, I've not seen a worse Wales defensive performance for a long time yeah well I tried to get the 
the sense of it across in the book as well, where I, it, it sort of that was a real significant game for a lot of reasons, but more than most, it's when the injuries started. Um, yeah. Obviously, Dan Bigger had been concussed against Australia, and he got another one against Fiji in that you know really horrible incident with Liam Williams. But also, that was Jonathan Davis's knee. Josh Adams got a dead leg. Um, George North was playing with a with a dodgy ankle, which came back to bite yep. him uh, in the semi final. So that sort of started to feel like where that was the point where it began to sort of unravel. Uh, we saw Wales's performances really taper off after that. They yeah. had to win that game in such a physical, you know, arduous manner. Meanwhile, the likes of England were coasting through the England coasted to the final, pretty much. Yep. Whereas Wales were having to really get down in the trenches, and it started against that against Fiji, and it carried on then into the French game. But I think that Fiji game was probably the the turning point in Wales's campaign, where they started they started getting injured, they started you know that they started to be held together by tape. You know, it it really started to sort of taper off after that, um, and it was difficult for them to get back up to the heights they'd hit against Australia. Quickly touch upon the Uruguay game because that was one that was a given, but that was a little bit sort of tougher than it maybe should have been. Um, Wales yeah. weren't fluent, and um, Uruguay had probably been the darlings of the World Cup. I think <laughs> before that point, they beat you know beat Fiji, and everyone loved them. Yeah. Um, they maybe went and sort of showed themselves up to be something other than that. Yeah, well, I I wrote in the books. I mean, like it was um, they were a difficult team to like. Um, you always you always have a sense, you know. Um, you always want to see the minnows doing well, um, the tier two nations causing a bit of trouble um, and doing themselves justice. But there was something distinctly unlikable about the Uruguayans in that match. There was a lot going on off the ball. They obviously trying to make it uncomfortable for Wales and it worked by and large, particularly in the first half. Um, but we had that incident at half time that really irked me um, where their captain, the blindside flanker, was Hadley Parks kicked the ball into touch to... Um, to call an end to the first half and um, I remember him jumping up and down in, in Ali Davis's face the uh, Uruguayan flanker and then he chased after Hadley Parks who was going down the tunnel to do the same to him and Ross Moriarty gave him a nudge just to get him out of the way and at the World Cup they had like a plastic covering on the ground in front of the tunnels um, and he obviously slipped on that and went down and then obviously the Argy Bargy started in the tunnel at half time uh, I think it was much to do about nothing but uh, nonetheless and then Obviously, we hear um, that uh, one of their players was cited for spitting and ultimately banned. Um, and they're obviously, you know, getting up to no good in the local night nightclubs and bars. So I think, yeah, whilst it, there was a lot of hype around Uruguayan, it was always, you know, nicey, nicey, and look how, look how brilliant this lot are. I just, you know, I try not, you try not to. Um, Discriminate because they're a tier two nation and not a tier one nation. But I would have judged any side the same that day. I, I really thought that they were pretty unlikable bunch. Like a young Mary White, actually, wasn't it? That's <laughs> um, that, that that takes us into the the quarterfinals. Um, France uh, still have flashbacks to this game. Just how sort of well, yeah, don't we all dreadful it was and and. I thought that was it. We, we all thought that was it. Yeah, well, the week building up to it was absolute chaos. Um, you know, it was great fun writing this chapter because it was so much went on. It, there were a lot of, first and foremost, there was a lot of French journalists out there 
um, covering the World Cup. So, and obviously with it being the quarterfinals, suddenly there was a lot of interest in Wales, or a lot more than there had been. Um, you know, you go to some press conferences up until this point, it'd basically be like three or four journalists there, and it was great for us because you get, you know, great access. But from this point, it began to sort of build up a little bit, and there was an article that appeared in Media Olympique at the start of the week, um, basically saying there's no way that Dan Bigger should be considered for the game um, because of the concussions he'd suffered, and that was a theme throughout the week. Yeah. Um, there was all, there was the Sean Edwards dynamic, Um obviously heavily linked with the job that he's now got uh, in France and the French journalists were keen to get into that um, I recall that one question being shut down by Wales's press officer because um, it was asked in the wrong manner um, and it implied that the Edwards deal was already done when it wasn't um, so you know it, it was it was always a bit like that yeah. all week because um, the, the concussion stuff didn't that go back to quotes from I think it wasn't the original chip on the shoulder on the French's shoulder um, to do with Sam Warburton made some comments yeah so that came later in the week actually when um, more towards the team announcement day um, where Sam had made comments in his book I believe yeah. um, about how the, how the French deal with concussions which had had obviously irked a lot of journalists uh, and a lot of people within the French Rugby Federation um, and of course playing out to this backdrop was the Jonathan Davis saga um, now again I wanted to try and give people a, a sense of what we were what we were seeing and hearing um, and, and what we were trying to do as journalists out there at this point because you know we get access to training pretty much every day in World Cups because you have to, the, yeah. the team are required to do that um, some days you go, some days you don't. But that week, um, we went every day because we couldn't afford not to in case something happened. We, everybody wanted to know what was going on with Jonathan Davis. My phone was going nuts from people in work, my mates, everything. So we were trekking. Uh, obviously, we're back in Oita at this point, and the team's hotel was was a fair distance away from the training ground. So we were trekking halfway up the mountain to get to the training ground every day after presses. Um, it was raining that week a lot as well um, and Jonathan Davis being a rather intelligent bloke would always train as far away from the press as he could um, we never saw him really doing too much intensive workouts um, but we were told that things were going well um, you know I was told by a source that week because um, there were injuries over concerns over North Bigger Parks um, was carrying a shoulder knock I think and obviously fractured his hand and Jonathan Davis and Josh Adams as well you know with his dead leg uh, we were guaranteed that all those players would start um, against France and you know I, I've no doubt that at that point in time they probably were going to uh, going to um, and then on the day of the captain obviously gets named on the side day of the captain's run comes and we're there filming I'm there filming for Wales Online to get the clips etc and just as we're being ushered away uh, from the ground, uh, I saw Jonathan Davis in conversation with Prav Mathema, who is the head of medical for WIU, um, and then walk, just walking away from the training session and from the rest of the players. And he walks past Gatland and he says something to him, doesn't look particularly happy. Um, I'm thinking, that's not good. Um, and then we get told that he's been taken away to do some extra training because he hasn't trained much that week and they want to get a certain uh, volume of work into his legs and his body uh, to build him up to the game, which is plausible in 
in modern yeah. you know sports science and all the rest of it um, I had no reason to believe that wasn't the case uh, so away we go obviously then kickoff comes around the following day or the warm up you know all week I'd been treating this with a certain degree of suspicion because it it didn't smell right all week um, and then the news comes an hour before kickoff that he's out um, uh, uh, Sarah Mockford from Rugby World was sat next to me and before the news broke she, she asked me if I was feeling confident about Wales's chances and it's, it's fair to say that after the Jonathan Davis news broke my um, my confidence levels dipped somewhat yeah I remember I remember that I remember waking up in bed and finding out about it I was literally <laughs> just about to start my shift for work so I um, it was the first thing I saw that morning was that John Davis was out and suddenly the walk into work was just a lot more nerve wracking um, yeah oh yeah but we scraped through it. We did. And, um, you know, it was... Owen Watkins actually played quite well that day. And But I just remember thinking at half-time, uh, you know, because all that week then we started getting questions, or, you know, Warren, this could be your last game in charge because suddenly there was... Yeah. It was all or nothing. Um, at half-time, I, I was genuinely just sat there thinking, well, could be going home tomorrow. That would be nice. <laughs> you know, you spent you spent a long time away from home, from your girlfriend, from your family, and your friends, and just like, oh yeah, could uh, could all be over tomorrow or tonight? And um, well, more to the point of this podcast, the the book was in the bin as well at that point. Um, my publisher and myself had basically decided that if if Wales went out in the quarterfinals in the sort of you know a yeah, I guess a you know, an, an unspectacular fashion, then there would probably be no appetite for the book and that would be it. And, you know, by that point, I'd done quite a bit of work on the book and and, and at half-time in that game, it was probably going in the bin. So, you know, I'm very thankful to Mr. Vaha Mahina. Uh, yeah, how much, uh, how much commission is Thomas Williams getting? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, a very dramatic day, obviously. Nobody thought they were winning at half-time. Warren Gatland admitted that... He thought they were going home as well, and um, you know it's funny how things work out. But you know, again, they paid a price for that game. You know, Josh Navidi's hamstring went, and that ended yep. his tournament. And you know, by that point, Wales were really uh, that. You know, illustrating the point I made earlier, hanging on. Which takes us on to the semi-final, which is when they could hold on no no longer. Yeah, obviously Liam Williams went during the week. Uh, yeah. Another one, you know, another bit of insight into that. Um, I had a message from our boss here uh, saying, what's wrong with Liam Williams? There's rumours had started circulating. This was quite late at night in Japan. Uh, and to my knowledge, there was nothing wrong with him because, you know, shortly before, you know, earlier that day, I'd seen him in training. I'd watched him train and he was fine. Um, and I'll never forget it. I think, I think that was the day that Bryn Gatland was in training, and that rings a bell. And I remember thinking, are they? Why would he be there? Are they? What are they trying to hide? Like, do you know what I mean? I was. I started to get quite sceptical about it because it was obviously going to be open to the public, and I, I didn't think they were just going to give us a story for nothing. So I wondered whether they were saying, "Oh, look, look at Bryn Gatland over here," without 
meaning then that we would all be so preoccupied with what's Bryn Gatlin doing there instead of counting and looking to make sure all the other players who, you know, all due respect, matter, um, were actually there. Um, Because, like I said, it's not the sort of... Had Owen Lane just had a call-up at that point as well to cover Navidi? Yeah, so... So it wasn't when Prince Charles was in there to give his cap? No, I think that... I think... I think the Prince Charles thing came slightly the day after oh, Liam I, Williams. I just seem to remember there was a few things going on which yeah, a lot distracted went on, from it. A lot went on that week. Um, but I remember going back and looking at the... Because I was filming every session for Wales Online, I went back and looked through every single clip I had of training and much to my relief, Liam Williams was actually there. Um, as it transpired, again, just shortly after we'd been ushered away from a training session... Uh, he'd injured his ankle and his World Cup was in fact over you know our colleague Mark Order has got the story here um, and that's just the way it goes sometimes as a journalist you know you, you, if we were there I don't know 10 minutes longer we might have yeah. we might have seen the injury but you know, thought, you know we only get 15 minutes worth of access and you don't really see much in that 15 minutes to be honest yeah and his World Cup was over so you know you can see now how Wales is you know, depth is becoming tested. You know, we'd heard a lot over the last few years about depth. A lot of the the no regrets plan was built on that and developing depth, and they had done. Um, and it was going to be tested against South Africa. Indeed, it was. Um, oh, I, I remember that Liam Williams injury with absolute disdain because obviously we did. Mark, as you say, did the story. I think it was on a was it Tuesday, something like that, maybe the Tuesday afternoon yeah. UK time. I was on a 3am shift the next morning, um, Wednesday morning, get in at 3am, the, the door's locked, uh, mm. someone's locked the door outside. Oh, I, I do remember this. Um, uh, text them saying, can you let me in? They're doing the Liam Williams official line from the union, which I wasn't thrilled with because <laughs> I felt that me being outside uh, our office at 3am in the morning was more important, was more important than, uh, than <laughs> the Liam Williams line that we'd broken about 12 hours before but um, yeah. thankfully I managed to get into the office at some point awesome yeah well this is that's the way it goes games. so yeah and then again you know South Africa World Cup late yeah. late late defeat well obviously the, the Jonathan Davis still thing was still rumbling on because then it was it was another whole week of is he going to be fit yeah. you know everything we saw from him in training was everything that he'd done the week before that we saw from him um, I describe it in the book as being like David Beckham's metatarsal because you know there was so much focus on what was happening with Jonathan Davis that it, it literally every press conference got asked um, and then the day of the team announcement uh myself and two other journalists were given the opportunity to go and interview Jonathan um, which I thought which gave me a lot of confidence that he was going to be ready uh, because I thought there's no way we'd be given given this opportunity if if he wasn't so we had to leg it across we had to do Warren Gatlin press conference in one side of their hotel I talk about this in the book their hotel was huge it must have taken you about 15 minutes to get from one side to the other so we did Warren Gatland on one side of the hotel and we had to leg it across to the other side of the hotel into the sort of reception area of one of the three main buildings of the complex, get a lift then all the way up to something like the 16th floor, I think it was, um, 
to where the team room was and we sat on a little coffee table outside the team room and Jonathan Davis emerged and um, you know I've, I interviewed Jonathan a couple of what was it two maybe 2018 uh, Autumn Internationals uh, about the the knee the, sorry the foot injury that he'd suffered uh, against Australia yeah. uh, after the Lions tour and um, very candid interviewee in a very sort of um, intimate setting uh, and, and he was incredibly honest he spoke about you know how he pulled himself out um, of that captain's run that I'd seen um, they tried to get him they did another fitness test I think the morning of the game uh, which he you know wasn't which proved that he wasn't in the, the right shape to do it and he, there's a great line from him that sort of says you know there were too many people who had worked too hard uh, for me to just selfishly throw myself in there essentially at the um, jeopardise the team's chances of winning the game and I think that spoke volumes of not only Jonathan but the group as well um, as a whole you know that that was kind of the ethos all along um, for this squad of players and, and I thought that really signified it nicely as I say it was a late defeat um, and yet it felt like in those final 10 minutes Wales had wrestled the ascendancy back from South Africa somehow got back into a game when thanks to Josh Adams' try and it felt like those final 10 minutes here it was we, you know Wales are on, are on the up mm. got territory got field position got possession then they got turned over yeah they look like they're going to get to World Cup final yeah drop goal doesn't you know doesn't quite uh, hit the mark from Reese Patchell yeah but we've still got an, a line out and then it all goes wrong yeah I mean they got they got a lot of criticism for the way that they played in that game um but I think it was twofold. I think number one, it was a it was evidence of of where they were physically, um, as I describe in the book. You know, when when you're knackered uh, and when your body's tired, the easiest thing to do is to put the ball up your up your jumper and run straight. You know, you lose the desire not desire that's the wrong word, um, but you lose the sort of inclination to try little things to find space to you know you know a little bit of footwork here, flick out the back door there, you know. You know, it becomes the game becomes very simple when your when your body's yeah. basically giving up. Um, and I'm not suggesting it by any stretch of the imagination that any of the players gave up because it's it it was not in the DNA of that side to throw the towel in, um, and we saw that against South Africa. And Warren Gatlin has since spoken about squeezing every last ounce out of the side um, in Japan, and they did. Um, but and also, you know it. <laughs> They should. They got a lot closer to beating South Africa than England did. Um, so they might have played boring rugby and they might have played yeah. a very simple game plan. But it was all. Every box was ticked. They stayed in the fight until the last ten minutes when anything could happen. But unfortunately, it didn't go their way. Yeah, I can't remember if I saw him a direct quote from him, but Warren Gatland would have been confident going into that last ten minutes. Yeah, well, they Which, always like, is all is all you could have asked for in that game. Yeah, and they always back themselves in that last ten minutes, and it that's what all the work had been about for the seven months prior to the World Cup was for that last ten minutes, and um, yeah, you know, it didn't go their way, and it, it was tough to take for for a lot of them. You know, it was probably the last World Cup for the core of that side, um, and it was uh, it was probably one of their best chances to win it. And then you had the week that nobody wants. You know, we could have been there preparing for a World Cup final. Instead, it's the third, fourth playoff against New Zealand. Yes, who 
also also don't want to be there. Yeah, well, but they were also wounded themselves. Yeah. You know, that performance against England was nowhere near what is demanded of New Zealand rugby players. Um, it was also the last time out for Steve Hansen, Kieran yeah. Reid, uh, Ben Smith. So you know, they, you know, whilst it was also Gatland's last game, there was a lot going for New Zealand going yeah. into that game as well. Um, There's no way Steve Hansen's leaving on two defeats. No, and it was a very short turnaround that week. Obviously, Wales played a day later than than New Zealand did, and the game was on the Friday. Um, they'd had more injuries. George North had done his hamstring. Wayne Wright also. You know, it was a perfect storm in many ways. Um, I, I think the way modern rugby is these days, I think the the relevance of that game has got to come into question. Wales had slogged themselves for not only the six, seven weeks they were in Japan, but the, the months running up to it. Yeah, You get so many injuries in test match rugby nowadays. It feels like you're putting players in harm's way for the sake of it. Um, and I don't understand. I don't think that's required. I think world rugby need to seriously consider that. You know, it's a money spinner at the end of the day. So that means it will probably... Uh, probably still be there for many years to come but yeah it was a tough week that um, and it obviously started it started with a press conference with Robbie McBride where he discussed the passing of his mother for the first time um, and we talk about that in the book as well and, and how how that story was handled and that was a really difficult one um, obviously you know every journalist out there who's covered Wales for the last few years gets on with Robbie McBride um, you know he's 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 a pretty solid bloke in many ways one of the strongest handshakes in world rugby um, and you know it, it was a difficult time for him but again spoke volumes of him um, that he was he was able to put that personal tragedy aside and um, it was never in his any, never any doubt in his mind that he would stay out there to, to see the job through um, despite the fact none of us would have begrudged him going home a week early especially the way yeah. the way it all went Um so yeah, it was a it wasn't an easy week, and uh, and you know Wales definitely a game too far for them in the end. But you know, I, I think that you know the third fourth place playoff was probably a fair reflection of where they were in the tournament. There you go. Don't need to don't need to buy the book now. There it is. Well, it's all there. As I said, Ben, oh, yeah. no regrets. Uh, it's uh, in Amazon and all good bookshops, and um, you know hopefully you learn something from it if you buy it. If you don't, then sorry. There you go. Just in time for Christmas. Absolutely. What's, what's the one thing you've learned then from from writing the book? We'll finish on that. Um, one thing I've learned. I mean, publishing books is very different to publishing newspapers. Um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, in our job, you know, your job is to inform other people of things they don't know. Yeah. You are the conduit between the players and the fans. Um, there's a certain responsibility that comes with that. Um, but I just wanted to pull the curtain back really and show show people a little bit more of what it's like behind the scenes I mean you know myself and my publisher went back and forth on this quite a lot um, and there was a bit of editing to be done um, here and there but I just wanted to yeah, like you said explain that you know we don't always have a, a you know common misconception is we've always got a hotline to the Warren Gatland, we've got a hotline to Martin Phillips, we've got a hotline to whoever. You know, it doesn't always happen like that. And, you know, I wish stories would just fall in your lap with the click of a hand or a click of your fingers, but it doesn't happen like that. Um, and hopefully it illustrates what they um, what they put into the tournament in the years and months that ran up to it because, you know, it was a lot of hard work, but ultimately they fell just short again. 
There we go. Hopefully, uh, four years' time, you'll be writing another book on a Welsh World Cup victory. Hopefully, mate. Hopefully. We can only hope. Um, so that's it for today's podcast. Uh, as we say, you can get Matt's book on on Amazon and in any good bookstore in Wales. Um, but yeah, for all the latest Welsh rugby news, all the latest on the Rob Howley story as it develops, you can catch it all on Wales Online. Mm-hmm.